Welcome to this very first episode of COVID Conversations, Life in a Time of Corona. This is a podcast series from the Ohio State University's Center for Folklore Studies. I'm Rachel Hopkin, a folklorist and radio producer based in Columbus, Ohio. And over the coming year, we're going to be hearing from artists, scholars, and humanities professionals in Ohio in conversation with their counterparts elsewhere in the world, talking about how their work, their thinking, and their creativity has been affected and informed by the coronavirus pandemic. For this very first COVID conversation, which was recorded remotely on the 31st of August of 2020, I was delighted to welcome two wordsmiths and artists, Amope Carter Daboiko, who lives in Dayton, Ohio, and Alina Azadeh, who joined us from Lewis in the southeast of England. Amope Carter Daboiko was raised in rural southern Ohio. Her work focuses on the intersectionality of place, identity and belonging, and the experience of growing up as a mixed-race child of Nigerian heritage on the Appalachian landscape. Alina Azadeh is a UK-based writer, artist, performer and social activist of British-Iranian heritage. Both Alina and Amope are storytellers and textile artists for whom the concept of connection to land and the way in which that forms identity is an important theme. They are also, to use Amope's phrase, history keepers. In addition, both teach and facilitate the creativity of others. I began the conversation by asking my two guests how they were both doing at this stage in the coronavirus crisis. I began with a moping. Well, I was riding on the corona coaster, but I think I have my new corona legs. It was quite challenging at the beginning. I had just gotten up out of the bed from a surgery and was back on the performance tour for two days before I had to come back and quarantine. So I had a a lot of emotions that I had to sort out. I can believe it. I'm going to come back and ask you more about that in more specific detail in a minute. But Alina, just generally, how are you doing at the moment? Slightly weary, but I'm holding up. Also, strangely, I went through surgery just before COVID struck. So I was kind of prepared for a period of limitation. I also kind of had a bit of a surge of creative energy and I'm just now looking more into how to deal with things on a longer term because it's going to be longer than expected I think this um, new way of being and living but I'm doing all right. It's interesting that you both had surgery I hadn't realized that you both had that in connection as well there seem to be quite a lot of parallels between your lives and career so I'm going to explore that as we go along but I guess I'm going to begin by asking you both to tell me a little bit about how you came to be the artists and wordsmiths that you are and how your creative and professional identity formed and what it consists of. Amope, do you want to have a go with that first? Yes, I would do that. I remember being nine and wanting to be a writer. I was an avid reader and I wanted to be able to tell my own stories, but it wasn't until I found myself with a baby and three quarters And my children's father was having some issues with the federal government because of some poor choices he made. And I found myself at 41 with two kids that I had to figure out how I was going to feed and dress and educate. I had been volunteering as a storyteller and an Ohio Art Council representative came up to me and asked me if I would apply to their artists and education program. So what had been a gift to the community of volunteering wound up becoming, I like to call it my second husband. Can you be a bit more explicit about what you mean by that? 
storytelling made riding the edge of poverty a little more sustainable. You know, I had my second child at 41 and there just wasn't enough energy there to stand on my feet and work a second job at a factory or clean somebody's office. As a child, my mother had been very adamant about me not being an artist. So I had to have some uh, heart-to-heart talk with her deceased self so she would get her claws out of my destiny. And once I figured out that I could make a go of it, storytelling became an avenue of income for me that I had never anticipated. And can you tell me a little bit about the kinds of themes that you're exploring in your storytelling? Being a child of Appalachia and being a spirit in brown skin, I began to look for a relationship between Appalachian folklore and the remnants of African culture within folklore. The Br'er Rabbit cycle stories of Uncle Remus come from the Deep South, but they are classically reworks of folklore from the Yoruba, the Ga, the Ashanti people of the western shore of the African continent. Then looking at Jack tales where Jack seems to be stupid until he winds up solving problems was kind of counterpoint to a trickster character, but I could see how they were both related to my experience. So that's what I began to do first was to talk about how this set of Jack tales, which is considered to be of European Scotch-Irish extraction, met Br'er Rabbit and presented them as cousins particularly since I also have Scotch-Irish ancestry, I thought it would be an easy way to use both aspects of my culture. And it worked. It worked really well. And it sent me into exploring what I call global threads. And one of the things you talk about in your biography is that you're a history keeper. So you're also telling stories that relate to your family history as you have heard it. Can you tell me a little bit about that strand of your storytelling? When I was a kid, it was common, the proverb of being seen and not heard. And I was a small child, meaning I could hide myself in small places. And I learned to be real quiet so I could eavesdrop on grown-up conversation. And as long as they didn't know I was there, they would talk. And they would talk about family stories. So when I was 25, one of my elder cousins who had been my mother's family's historian gave that task to me. She said, this is an appointment, this is not an election, and you have to do it long enough till you can identify who you have to pick next. So I asked her why, and Edna, why am I the one? She said, because you're the one who knows all the stories, the ones you're supposed to know and the ones you're not supposed to know. And I was like, okay. So I am my mother's family's historian, But even though you've been given this kind of official role within the family, your mother still wasn't very happy about the idea of you being a storyteller and a keeper of stories. Is that right? My mother was conflicted between the church and the world. She was just insistent that artists were irresponsible and she didn't birth any. Her perception was around vaudeville and minstrel shows and striptease, those types of art forms that are associated with alcohol and debauchery. It has taken me all these many years, but just last week I was talking with my 91-and-a-half-year-old father about storytelling and this project, 
and my father said something to me, if he says nothing else to me for the rest of his natural life, he said, well, storytelling kind of like a ministry. And I went, yes, he finally gets it. And I know if it had not been for COVID-19 and making the decision to live like I might die tomorrow, one of the things that COVID did for me was put my mortality right on the bridge of my nose. And I made a decision. I was cleaning up all kinds of emotional and astral trash. And so having my minister father tell me that my calling to be a storyteller and a history keeper is just as significant as his position standing behind the pulpit is pretty powerful for me. Gosh, that's quite a story in itself. Thank you. So now, Alina, I know that like a mope, you have multiple strands of heritage that you embrace in your work. Can you tell us about how you came to be the artist that you are? So, well, much in common, in fact, with a mope, she said, I'm my mother's family historian. I was born in, in England and my mother was born in Iran and she always fed us very strong current of her culture, of poetry. We had rugs everywhere. She was a crochet designer. She talked a lot about politics, literature, history, all of that. But when my mother took me first to Iran at the age of 21, that's when I really started to realise that I had something to offer in terms of you know, second, second, third generation, people of mixed identity. From a very young age, I was always drawing and painting. So I was a visual artist and I read a lot, but I didn't write at all. And I was always fed a lot of poetry, Persian poetry, English poetry, love literature, but I never saw myself as someone who tells stories in that way. And that came through textiles. So my mother was a crochet designer. Fabric and textile were always important to me, but it wasn't until after she died that this idea kind of emerged up around the idea of the loom, of weaving a long fabric, which would be fed by bits of information and stories around people who had been loved but had died and people who were living who were loved. And at the point which I got my first piece of arts funding, I didn't really know exactly what would start off this piece of work. But when my mother died very suddenly, three weeks after my daughter was born, my first child, she died in the sea, she died in the Asian tsunami in 2004, if you remember this huge event. And this project actually saved me because it was like a container for myself and others to express their kind of experiences of loss and love. So the first two names that were translated into data code that then wove this fabric were the names of my mother and my daughter, their location of birth and location of death. And then 300 other names and pieces of information followed from people around the world. And then I started to run, I ran some workshops with women who'd been bereaved. And I began to realise that actually sitting in person with people and using handmade materials, in this case it was threads and telling stories of people that we lost, was really powerful. So although I've been working in digital media and I I loved the concept, it was sitting in a room with people uh, and telling stories that I found was kind of opening up a new path for me. And it was from that moment that I began to work very much more with bringing people into my arts practice. I am so amazed at the similarities of our experience because my career didn't start until my mother let go and my mother was died when I was 30 I'm now 68 it wasn't until my mother was I said she 
stood beside the Almighty and he said, look, I got a plan for that girl. Will you please let go? And I could actually feel in my body when I felt empowered to go do the work. Amope, actually, speaking of your work, I realize I didn't give you the opportunity to talk about what you do as a textile artist. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, you know, I was listening to Alita talk about her mother being a crochet artist and my mouth flew open. I call it the summer I was porched. You know, Americans really don't have, a, unless you're Hispanic, we really don't have a rite of passage ceremony anymore to fledge children into a, a new life. But the summer I was 10, my mother's sister, she taught me all the handcrafts that the women in that family knew. I had to learn to take care of my own hair. It was that prep for, for men art. I know now what it was, you know, and I didn't have a hope chest, but I was going to have some hand skills. They were certain of that. So I was taught to crochet. I couldn't get the knitting thing down, but embroidery was what I loved because you can make pictures with it. And so I think that in my head, because I've still got that one little place that says you can't be an artist. And when people say artist, they often just generally mean visualist. But as you're asking me this, Rachel, I realize that the Kakalambalala applique is indeed a piece of visual art. Amope originally created the Kakalambalala applique to serve as a backdrop for some storytelling events she performed at the Cincinnati Children's Theatre. It actually itself depicts a narrative. The story is about a tree that's in the middle of the village. Uh, this is the time of animals when people are not yet able to interact and the animals can all speak the same language. And this tree has beautiful fruit on it and it's supposed to drop as long as the animals remember the name of the tree and give it honor. So at this point in time, the tree won't drop its fruit because everybody has forgotten the name of the tree. They've been so satiated for so long, they've never had struggle. And so three different animals with different personalities, of course, there's the one who thinks he's the strongest, the water buffalo, the one who thinks he's the fastest, the rabbit, and then the one who just plods along till the job gets done, which is always turtle. But in trying to design this so that it could be a backdrop, and because I believe that we can teach academic material through creativity a whole lot better than rote learning, I began to envision what fabric could send what message. The tree, which is in the middle, had a, a brown and white batik stripe that kind of looked like bark. And then I had a piece of fabric that had different animals in it. And I cut them out and put them underneath the tree. And there is uh, some fabric that I use for the sun to represent creator. And the rays coming off the sun are the same fabric that I use to make the fruit on the tree. So that I could talk about fruit being the result of sunshine and that they were both the same thing by using the same fabric. So I use it to teach science. We use it to project the story. And then I tell the story. And it's a wonderful exercise. I've, I've seen teachers stop grading 
papers and stop writing in their grade books to pay attention. And that for me is more important than children paying attention because many times grown-ups think that they're intellectually above this childish thing called storytelling. It's interesting that you both tell stories through textiles as well. So what kinds of things were you working on when COVID hit and how did it hit in your part of the world? Alina, do you want to take that first? Okay, so as I mentioned before, I had had this foot surgery and I hadn't been able to move for about two months, literally. So I was already going a bit internal and I had received some funding to progress the writing of um, my novel about my mum and also a new piece of work that was set in the coastal land near here, around the South Downs National Park. And it's connected to my mum because it's the place where she both arrived in the UK in the 60s from Iran and her ashes were scattered after we got them back from Thailand. And so I started working on this piece, which I thought was going to be a live on-site piece involving other people. And I was also working on a craft-based residency up in the middle of the UK, in Birmingham, which was with communities up there all around the idea of the commons, you know, everything that we share that belongs to us and craft and making. So I had these two kind of projects going. And what happened in lockdown was on the week of lockdown, I was about to go up and give some workshops in Birmingham. They all got cancelled. And then also I was about to go and give a talk about my other project and get partners on board and get interest. And that got cancelled. But as someone who's worked quite a lot in a hybrid space as in I've worked with storytelling that both happens in a sort of live spaces and online I didn't freak out completely because I, I knew that they could both somehow translate into the digital realm so what happened was well the novel got you know I had quite a lot of time to get that into shape it was just some stories and then the piece of writing which I thought would be this outdoor piece I thought I'll turn it into a spoken audio piece and then I'll use it later. And the other thing was that I was about to run a retreat with writers and artists of colour right there, like 20 minutes walk from the coastline, looking at all of the themes and metaphors of the landscape in the context of belonging and identity. And because of COVID happening, there was a whole level of fragility, of course, and of uncertainty. And we weren't sure whether to run it because we couldn't do it on site. but we, the, the, organization that I work with writing our legacy a diverse literature organization we figured actually it was even more important to run that retreat and so uh, what I did was I used this audio piece sent it to the writers and said we're going to run this retreat and you're just going to use the audio piece for the themes of the retreat so the idea of looking at our origins because it's a kind of it's a story that I've written that is set in the future so it's set in 2053 and it came about because I had studied the genre of speculative fiction, which is a genre of writing that comes from Afrofuturism and you know began around the civil rights movement time and is an amazing kind of umbrella term for many forms of writing that include science fiction and magic realism. But it's a means by which you can comment on and discuss race and gender and alternative futures in a kind of a safe and powerful and quite exciting way. 
So just before I had my operation, I had gone there to Berlin Gap, which is this piece of the coastline, to kind of finish off the last chapter of my book, which ends there. And I went into the visitor centre and on the floor was a line and it said 2053. And I said, what's this line? And they said, oh, that's where the water will come to. And that was 15 metres from the actual edge of the coast. And I said, God, that's close. What's the plan? when the water reaches because looking along the coast there are houses there are all kinds of things in place they said we don't know we don't have the plan and so I just got thinking around you know future and fragility and uncertainty and then I was also thinking about the kinds of stories and the histories that I found in some of the literature around the park that are very much a western centric history and I know there to be other histories because I have looked at them and they're not reflected in that literature and I was thinking about how decolonization isn't just an urban process, it's rural and peri-rural. And, and I knew that writers of colours were writing about relationship to nature and about their heritage, and I wanted to put the two together and also think about future. So we went ahead with this retreat and I finished that piece, but it's just the beginning of a bigger project. Alina told us that she's now run two of these retreats online for writers and artists of colour during this pandemic time. Running those retreats gave me a kind of community context in which not only my feelings, thoughts and stories about my mother and my identity, my relationship to this particular place and to future made sense, but in which there was this shared solidarity and a commonality that was really powerful and that we needed each other. <laughs> and that, so we basically introduced all kinds of things into the retreat that were not only about people writing and writing prompts and going out if you could and coming back and sharing, but were about how do you care for yourself during these times? What do you do to nurture your writer self and how do you stay resilient? And then we started a writer's group. So what I realised is that actually through COVID, I've kind of found this important community and pathway to linking my heritage and loss to a kind of preparation for the losses that are to come, both in terms of the landscape and environment and climate and all those things, but also in terms of people and family and you know, we're facing really uncertain times and trying to find ground in which to stand, which is quite difficult at the moment. But that writing in particular is such a fundamental medium for that because you're not reliant on anyone to write. You can just put pen to paper or open your laptop. You know, I've worked with many institutions, done installations and complex projects, and I love the freedom that one has what you can just wake up and write in your notebook. So that has been really important to me. And the other the other piece, the craft residency, that has translated into a series of films. And it just happened to be that I wanted to do a project about the emotional underpinning of the commons in crises time, which is the things, the values and experiences that we have that can feed us and keep us going. So they were five themes. So I, I've done these how to make films that will then become workshops using different craft mediums. So the first one is making medals for everyday courage with kind of bits and pieces that you find around and um, second one is care making a container out of clay and putting little notes around things that you do to care for yourself there's one around loss so doing wrapping and binding and then there's one around um, connection so there's a kind of craftivism because I'm quite into craft activism craftivism piece and then the fifth one is about repair and thinking about repairing something that might be torn or broken but looking at that in terms of 
emotional repair and seeing something that has the equivalent of human scar, like a tear in a piece of clothing, as adding value through being repaired rather than as something that needs to be discarded. So looking at sustainability and those kind of things. So actually, for me, it's been very fruitful because I was privileged enough to have some funding for two projects and to be able to translate them into the digital realm and to then find that I was able to build communities of people. So it's fed me enormously and it's made me feel like I'm doing something, you know, that I'm contributing something and producing something that's meaningful. And so, yeah, that's how it's been. I want to pick up on something that you were talking about when you were talking about the workshops. Is um, How do we nurture ourselves in this time? How do we create resilience in ourselves? How do we nurture ourselves? How do we create resilience for some people who have not found this time so fruitful? Have you got any tips for people out there? Well, there's many ways, I think. It really depends on your situation, but just at a human level, letting yourself off the hook and not feeling like I've just been talking about all the stuff I did and very productive, but actually (laughs) what's most important is the pauses in between (laughs) is actually to let yourself off the hook and find ways to just be with what is going on without escalating one's sense of stress and tension around it. I do a thing where I go and sit on my mother's chaise long in my room for say 10 to 20 minutes a day and I just sit and do nothing. I don't sit and fix things in my brain. I don't sit and try and figure things out. I just sit and I just breathe with it. I found Buddhist practices very helpful for this. Then community, if there's a community that you feel really drawn to connect with or create with or help out, if you can do that, is really important. The problem is, speaking like this, it's the words of someone who's been privileged enough to be able to do that. (laughs) You know, we've just about been able to make it work financially till now. But for people that I know, they've been through, you know, intense ill health and financial catastrophe as a result. I have not got to that point yet, but I know that that is a possibility always. And when people was talking about this imminent sense that things can just disappear, <laughs> you could die at any moment in one way or another, is incredibly valuable. And embracing that kind of in, on the edge of life and death. And while I'm here, I'm going to just make the most of this moment and see how I can fully be in my body. That's why I feel connection with nature is, if you can go out, is so massively important. That's why I do a lot of nature writing on my retreats. Is that helpful? Yeah, that is really helpful. Thank you. And it sounds like almost from the get-go, you were pivoting into different ways of doing things. But Amope, I think it was a little bit harder for you, wasn't it? Can you tell me about your experience of COVID descending into your life? I had been spending um, my years since I moved here to Dayton terribly, terribly, deeply engaged in community work, tutoring, holding activities. I was volunteering for the National Park Service. I had programs at the Paul Lawrence Dunbar Home, the first internationally known African-American poet. I had just completed a long-term residency with middle schoolers here in Dayton on identity, place, and belonging, and had staged 60-plus students at the public library, fulfilling my dream of playwriting and all of that, and I was on the, on the in the newspaper, and life was good. And then screech, and then the fear. I knew that fear makes the the soul vulnerable, and I decided I wasn't going to be fearful. 
but I had to figure out what I was feeling and I was angry. I was angry because I had just used that residency money to buy myself a car and I couldn't go nowhere to show it off. I was angry because I couldn't be with my friends who feed me emotionally because we were all over 65 and high risk. I was angry that our government had undone the office of the pandemic, I guess like inviting the pandemic to come. I was just so angry. So I decided that I would go outside. I was already getting up before sunrise and I found it very soothing to be outside with no industrial noise. And the birds, they were just so loud. And I knew the birds were trying to tell me something. So every morning I would go out and I would just soak in the environment. And I began to watch the birds. One bird just constantly picking at this fence and this bush, trying to get this branch loose. And I went, oh, well, the birds ain't heard about COVID. They doing the bird thing. They going to do what's necessary to create the environment needed for another generation. And they are not operating in fear. They're just doing what they traditionally do because this is the time to do this. So when I came to that revelation that if I continue to reflect on the traditions of my people, that I would be okay. So I come from medicine people. I come from people who know what you're supposed to eat, how you're supposed to eat it, what you're supposed to drink. And so I started doing those things, being very intentional and mindful about everything I put in my mouth. I was still kind of ifish, meaning emotional ups and downs. Tears would come without my consent. And then I thought, Okay, if I just open up my mind to new possibilities. Well, my sister sent a text, said our father was preaching over the church's Facebook account. And I was like, I'm going to watch that. So the church was empty except for these two deacons in the back running the equipment. And there was my father at 91 standing in the empty church preaching like the church was full. But I had, no, I had no appreciation for social media platforms. I thought they were a waste of time. Well, my daddy preached the second time. By the third time, I said, wait a minute. Here's the man that didn't want technology in the church. And he then made this shift into the virtual reality where the village square seems to be these days. Are you going to really let him outdo you? And in 48 hours, with that adjustment, I had work coming in that was virtual work. The library called me and said, we know that we dropped two performances for you, but would you come in here and do this work with us? And then you're talking about resilience. I had a performance I was supposed to do in Minnesota and the producer called me and said, oh, Mope, we're not gonna be able to go to Minnesota, but I want you to design a webinar on African-American songs of resilience. I almost giggled in the middle of the conversation because I had been singing all them songs trying to be resilient. <laughs> I went from feeling like a heavy boulder to feeling light like a feather. 
And I did that. I did an online poetry reading for Writers Conference of Northern Appalachia. Next thing I knew, a group of us, urban Appalachian folk, were doing a workshop for the library over Zoom. And it was like, oh, this is the future and I am in it. So it's been extraordinarily rewarding. Amope went on to explain that she hasn't done any writing on the scale that's been keeping Alina busy during these past few months, but she hasn't been idle in that regard either. I was trying to write Corona verses. I was writing every day, a challenge to do a six word mantra. <laughs> one day, one of mine was, I sure am glad I know how to cook. And then two days later, mine was, I sure am sick of cooking. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, cooking grounded me. And I began to think differently about venue, places, product, ancestral heritage. And finally, in doing that assessment of impending doom and death, I said, what is the thing that you would regret not doing if you left here tomorrow? And I said, sharing the earth wisdom that I received from my grandparents, both sides of my family were agriculturalists. And so I made an agreement in a housing complex, metropolitan housing projects, as we would call them, with these two other adults. We took these empty beds, we planted them, and then we watched the neighbors as they watched the food begin to emerge. And so it was an opportunity to have mass and distanced conversation with people about agricultural experiences they'd had as a child, what brought their family out of the South to Dayton, We had a a teacher who came into the garden and we were talking about the bees and the pollination process and this attraction and lovemaking that was going on that created fruit that sustained humans. And when when we got finished, she said, that was the best lesson. I will never forget this. And I was like, yeah, that's why we have to learn to tell stories for academic content because it sticks better. So working in the earth, you know, I come from them people who when you really needed something to work well, you dug a hole and you talked to the earth and you put some rum in there and some honey and some tobacco, and then you covered it up and you made yourself an earth altar that you went to regularly when you needed to cathart. So digging in the dirt was like that for me. And then to see that intention blossom and produce food that I could say to kids who were wandering, oh, do you know what this is? You know, when you go to the store and you get that hot pickle in that plastic envelope, this is what it is before it's a pickle. This is a cucumber. And watching their eyes light up with that revelation that what's in the plastic bag comes from the earth through sunshine. And being able to take these children who live in such a plasticized environment to be able to see the liturgy of their family's legacy. It was so difficult for me to hear that urban people of color were dropping like flies behind the initial COVID because of poor health policy. And these people that I was interacting with were those who were impoverished, who weren't going for good medical care, 
who weren't educated. So all of this was surrounding me. And I was like, what can I do? And I thought, you can go teach people how to grow food. That's what you can do. This has led to Amope becoming involved in another much larger urban gardening project in Dayton, which she is helping to turn into an art space and a venue for cross-town conversations, as she put it. One of the things that I've got in the works is an Autumn Equinox event where I will be presenting liturgy disguised as prose, poetry, and praise. <laughs> and we've decided that rather than trying to set up chairs and distance six foot apart, we're going to open up the back gate to this urban garden that's quite large, about three, four acres of land. And we're going to have a drive-in event. And there'll be a stage in the front. And uh, the event's called Pandemic Prescriptions. What prescription did you have to write for yourself to survive the anxiety of the first wave? That's so interesting. This garden has become a venue for your storytelling now, right? It's going to become a venue for storytelling, uh-huh. But it sounds like it already is in the way that you're telling stories about how to um, sow crops and things. Yes, in the smaller garden, that is what I'm doing. I'm telling the story of our agricultural past. For 400 years, people of African descent fed everybody in this nation. And now we're in a position where we can't even feed ourselves. So yes, that small venue, and now to enlarge it in this large venue, yes, yeah. Before we end, I wanted to include an excerpt from the story that Alina was telling us about earlier. Alina, this is the story that's called We See You Now, and you've created this wonderful audio version of it that we're going to play a little bit from. Can you set up this clip? Yeah, it's a, it's a story initially told from the point of view of the crumbling cliff and set in the future in 2053 when a lot of the land behind it was already immersed in water, which it isn't now, but will be. And so there's a girl who comes to the edge of the cliff and lies down and she's a girl of migrant heritage and she hears voices coming from below and she listens to them and then she realises that they're asking for her to respond with her story. And then after a while she realises that the place in which she's pouring her story into the earth, it's coming back to life because it's, it's you know, it's it's been a part of the land which has been sinking and disintegrating and dying. So it's this idea that through stories we bring, we regenerate the earth. And then she, she goes off to bring other voices, to bring other people back. And basically the end of this excerpt is the beginning of next week, my project, which is that people come and they start to speak. And so that's my next piece of work is the others who will come to speak and embedding the those audio stories as you move through this part of the land and probably online as well. It's a prologue piece, basically, for a bigger project. So this is an excerpt from Alina Azadeh's audio version of her story, We See You Now. In the years following the great pandemic, as the waves of grief at the loss of loved ones fostered a softening of many hearts and the breaking of others, the cliff noticed humans' increased need for connection with this coastal land and what lay beyond. Since borders had all but shut, it became aware of the unique role it had as a vantage point from where one could just about see and feel a connection with a thin stretch of the larger mainland, now a wisp of blue-grey, quietly submerging itself along with all other landmasses within its sight. With the sound vibration from the rock permeating the air above it, 
the cliff realised it had a hive mind and could hear this mind's thoughts hovering above its landmass, hovering so clearly and with a specific intention in the face of total erasure to try to reach human ears. It knew these humans were the delicate key to its survival and of their own survival too. And the sea, welcoming in a different and compelling frequency from its crumbling lover, knew it too. The traveller, sensing that something was being asked of her, put her lips to the ground and whispered into the earth. The voices stilled, and then it became clear. She turned on her tummy, cupped her hands around her mouth and began to tell her origin story, learned from her mother, of arriving here on these shores, aged three, from a country many months travel away, with just one small backpack. Her mother had told her it was a good thing she couldn't remember this journey herself, which had almost destroyed them both. She described the unexpected kindnesses of those who took them in, as well as the cruelties of others as she grew up of being forced to leave their home during the war and of their gradual rebuilding of a life here, in a quiet coastal town, with a sliver of a sea view out of the corner of the bathroom window. She laughed and wept and sang the song her mother had taught her for courage through difficult times. She spoke of her fragility, of going right to her own cliff edge, of facing uncertainty and of finding ways to anchor herself, to stay grounded. So much of this, such as building community and making food from their home country, had come through her mother. However, once she died, drowned in a far ocean, her ashes sent back and scattered here in this particular stretch of sea where they had first landed, and now a minuscule part of this chalky monument on which the traveller now stood. She used all the creative ways she could find to grieve and then recover through writing making, dancing and singing. So that's an excerpt from Alina's story. I encourage everyone to go and listen to the whole piece online and I'll put a link to that in the programme notes. Um, But it's interesting how it spoke to many of the themes just in that short excerpt that we've been talking about today, the storytelling. Yeah, so many, so many. The land, the nurturing, the food even. um, Holding on to tradition. Yes, so many. uh, Uncovering the, the bones, you know, ugh. I want to read it. I want to read it. I'll send it it to you. I'll send it to you. So we're just about out of time now. Is there any last thought that you want to share before I have to stop this recording? Uh, Just about how I realized just listening to Amopi, it confirmed to me how important it is, particularly with what has been going on with the whole Black Lives Matter and the murders that have been going on and our responses to that, how important it is to create this connection between our stories as people of colour and our relationship to the land and our reclaiming of that land through the cultivation of that land and through the sense of being able to be on that land together and look beyond the horizon, you know, look look to the future, not just stay in the uh, what may have been a past of great suffering or loss, and to take joy and to enjoy the silence and to listen to the birdsong and to look ahead together. And for me, it brings back to me the understanding of the principle of the primordial force called Oya, 
the destruction that must happen before rebirth can occur. Oh, yes. And so I am in prayer that I might see the manifestation of my ancestors' dreams beyond the corporation of my body, that I might be able to see that the world is going to be a kinder, gentler place and that people holding outdated ideas will move out of the way so our new sprouts can grow and fruit and, and bring the change that we need. Well, listen, Amope Carter Daiboku and Alina Asde, thank you so much for joining us for this first of these COVID conversations. Thanks, Rachel. Thank you so much. It's been such an honor. So that was Amope Carter Daiboku from Ohio and Alina Asde from the southeast of England. And that conversation was recorded on the 31st of August of 2020. You can find out more about the work of both of my guests in the notes that accompany this podcast. COVID Conversations, Life in a Time of Corona is a production of the Center for Folklore Studies at The Ohio State University. The series is funded by the university's Global Arts and Humanities Discovery Theme Grant Initiative. A great many people have been instrumental in making this series happen, too many to name here, but I would like to express special thanks to Paul Kottheimer, Cassie Patterson, and Nick Spitalski. I'm Rachel Hopkin, and thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.